Well, thank you, brother. And um, it's been a tough week, I know, for many <laughs> in this room. Uh, and for many of you who are at home right now, I just want to say uh, I, I know we have a number of families who are out due to the uh, pandemic, folks who are sick or folks who've been exposed and who are trying to uh, protect um, others. And, and so um, we just want you to know we're, we're with you. We miss you. Um, and uh, it has certainly been just uh, for me personally a uh, very sad week um, seeing a lot of the stuff in the news about uh, the Afghan airport, the Kabul International Airport, uh, as well as hearing from uh, some friends of ours in country and other friends who have recently left country. And, um, I, you know, my heart breaks thinking about what it's like for Afghans who are trying to get into the airport right now. Um, uh, that has been me in years past and my family actually at Kabul International Airport trying to board planes when uh, it, during the wintertime, during blizzards where flights have been delayed for a few days. And I can't begin to describe to you what the mob scene is like. Uh, and, and that's nothing like what's going on right now where it's life and death. So just the mob scene alone, not to mention uh, the, the wicked Taliban, what they're doing to people and the, all, the, all the exploitation and the violence that's going on. My heart breaks thinking about that. Um, my heart breaks even more for our brothers and sisters in country who have no shot at getting out. And there are some who are actually right now trying to get out and have a shot, but the vast majority have no shot of getting out. Um, many of them are, are uh, just, just having to try to shelter in place or go out to villages. And um, boy, we need to be praying for them. Uh, the only positive that I can come up with, <laughs> besides the fact that God is sovereign and often does build his church through times of just chaos um, is that more people are praying for Afghanistan right now than ever, I believe. And God uses prayer. Prayer is powerful. Uh, I, I want to back up what Gwen said at the beginning. The two orgs, you'll see them. I, I, sent, I sent the information out in the pastoral email on Thursday and you'll see the information, the links there to their sites on the back of our bulletin. These are both worthy organizations. One, SEND, is what used to be Baptist Global Response. It's basically uh, Southern Baptist International Relief and Development Work. What's cool about them is they're able to work through a number of missionaries, Christian aid workers, and even local pastors who are right there, okay, in, in countries all surrounding Afghanistan, right where refugees are going. The other is Global Leadership Development, uh, who we support as a church. And so both these organizations we know well, we support uh, you're giving to them, uh, every, every dollar goes straight to the effort. And, uh, and, and it's not only meeting real physical needs, and they are, but also is, is, is contributing towards long-term disciple making among refugees. So both are worthy of your support. But more importantly, and I mean this than giving money, is really to pray. God shakes the earth through prayer. So let's do that right now. Father God, we just pray that you would do a mighty work in Afghanistan. We, we pray for the believers um, scattered throughout the country, many of them out in villages. I pray for your protection on them. I pray that their extended families would not sell them out. Lord, I pray that they would, more importantly, not recant. Because as we're going to see in this text, the enemy would love to try to um, pull your people back to, 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 for them to say that Jesus is less than he is. Uh, for the sake of, of, of survival. Lord, I pray that, that they would long for the, the city whose builder and maker is God. Lord, wrap them with your presence. Give them boldness through your spirit. And Lord, 
blind the eyes of the wicked who would be hunting them down. Lord, I, I pray that you would um, just surround them with your angels as we're going to study this morning. Lord, I, I pray that, that this stuff would be, that we read about in Hebrews 1 would be real in their lives and that Christ would have just great worth to them. He is worthy of suffering for. And Lord, I, I pray in real time for those right now who uh, belong to you. Who, and, and Lord, for many who don't, but who we pray that you will save in the future who are trying to get out of the country, who are, who are positioned outside um, Kabul International Airport, who have uh, throngs of tens of thousands of shoving, stampeding people between them and the gates and also Taliban checkpoints. Lord, for those who... Uh, are innocent, we pray that you would open the doors and the gates that they could get out. And please be with all of our um, uh, women and men who are serving in the armed forces of our nation who are trying to airlift um, vulnerable people to safety. Lord, I pray that you would bless that operation greatly. Um, in, in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, let's get into our text um, this morning. And as we do, we, 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 we heard Pastor Stephen read about angels. So what comes to your mind when you think of angels? What kind of imagery? Hopefully not naked babies with bows. Um, that's certainly what our culture might say, right? Or soft creatures that play harps that would never hurt a fly. That's what we see in art going back for centuries. I prefer how C.S. Lewis described angels in his book, Paralandra. I'll just read you a quote here. This was a work of fiction, his mental image, but here's how he depicted them. He writes, suddenly two human figures stood before him on the opposite side of the lake. They were perhaps 30 feet high. They were burning white, like white hot iron. The outline of their bodies, when he looked at it steadily against the red landscape, seemed to be faintly, swiftly undulating as though the permanence of their shape, like that of waterfalls or flames, coexisted with a rushing movement of the matter it contained. I don't, I don't, well, this is imaginative. I don't think Clyde was too far off the mark. We, we see all kinds of descriptions of angels in scripture, one of which is the seraphim. In Isaiah 6, 2, and by the way, that kind of angel, that designation, that name seraphim means burning ones, burning with fire. Each of them, we read, had six wings. With two, he would cover his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And we know they, they're, they're there in the presence of Almighty God, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Well, here's point number one. And by the way, um, if, if you're just joining us this morning, we started last week uh, our study of Hebrews. And I can't tell you how long we'll be in this awesome book. It'll probably be about a year. Um, but in your worship guide, you will find a, uh, a little handout. And there's a lot of scripture there. So kind of buckle your seatbelts. We're going to try to move through a lot of stuff here this morning. Um, but that's there for you to take home. Uh, there are a couple of blanks in there just to maybe keep you, you know, if you're OCD like me and you got to fill in every blank, there they are. Uh, I think there's only three this morning. Um, but all of the main or most of the main texts I'm going to describe are there for you. Uh, that way it'll save you a little time as you, as you may want to turn in scripture. But our first point this morning is angels are real. They're not just little, they're not fairy tales. Angels are real. They're mentioned over 100 times in the Old Testament, over 160 times in the New and 
Angels are awesome and powerful. In, in Revelation chapter 20, we read about one angel that is stronger than Satan. At least in this text. Bear in mind, Lucifer was an angel as well. But get this, Revelation 20, one through three. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. That was a strong angel. Just grabbed Satan, wrapped him in the chain and threw him down into the dungeon. Back in the Old Testament, book of Judges, we read a story about a guy named Manoah. I don't know if any of you remember who that was. That was the father of Samson, right? So get this, Judges chapter 13, verse 19 and 20. So Manoah, but, so Manoah was visited by an angel. So Manoah took the young goat with a grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, not to the angel, but to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up towards heaven from the altar, the angel who'd been visiting him of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Get that. Picture that. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. That is pretty cool. Angel decided to go out in a blaze of glory. Hey, we'll see ya. We read in 2 Kings 19, verse 35, that one night, one angel defeated an entire army of Assyrians. This one angel went out into the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. That's, that's a lot of people to kill in one night. That's not a naked baby with a harp or a bow. Now, most of the time, we see in Scripture that angels are invisible to us. Consider this occasion in which God opened the eyes of Elisha's servant to the, the spiritual dimension beyond, to the angelic forces that were there that he hadn't seen before. The context was a city surrounded by the enemies. Elisha's in the city, the servant's thinking, this is it, we're in trouble. We read in verse 16 of 2 Kings chapter 6 that Elisha said to his servant, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. His beings made of fire. Now, now, sometimes we read in the Bible that angels conceal their identity and take the form of human beings. I don't know, some of you kids might call that shapeshifters. Well, in Genesis 18 and 19, we read the story of angels in human form who actually lodged with both Abraham and Lot. It's actually a terrible story, the part with Lot. Uh, we won't go into all that right now. But these were angels 
whom they didn't recognize, who looked like human beings, who, who stayed with them and ate food and slept in their, in their care and, and spent time with them and, and had a, a message from the Lord for them. We read in Hebrews 13 too, that the writer of Hebrews, who I call mystery man, wrote, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I, th I think he was probably referring back to that story in Genesis 18 and 19. So I, I do believe that it is possible that some of you, some of us, maybe in our lifetimes has unknowingly encountered an angel. I do believe that's possible. You're waiting for a story now. I'll tell you one story. And I have no idea. In fact, I would say probably not. Uh, certainly a, a dude used by the Lord, but I don't know. Um, years ago when my son was Tim, sorry, Tim, I didn't ask your permission to tell this story. I hope you don't mind. Probably five or six, maybe younger, maybe four or five. We were doing a little hiking up in uh, northern Georgia. We're back from the mission field and uh, we're, we're up in the Blue Ridge area. And we're walking across this like old railroad bridge and Tim was running ahead of us and there was a whole hornet's nest right underneath the bridge that decided to attack Tim. Ken Bandy, I don't know if you're here or not. Is Ken back this morning? Is he here? Um, he had a run in last week um, and, and poor, poor man, our dear brother, you know, got hit by, I don't know, 20 or 30 of them. And uh, well, that was Tim. He didn't get hit by that many, but several of them nailed him. And my son at that age, now he's a tough young football player, so he'd have no problem now, be no sweat. But back then, he didn't react real well to pain, okay? So he's starting to just holler, and I get to him, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm trying to kind of calm him down, and I look at his ear, and right as I'm about to say something to Beth about, hey, it's just fine, he'll be, he'll be all right, his, his ear swells up to be about twice the size. I'm like, oh my. So right as I'm about to say something about an ER, suddenly out of nowhere, this redneck showed up. Sorry, if I'm, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that as a pastor or not. <laughs> this shirtless dude with a tattoo, with a, with a cigarette in his mouth, just strode right up. And you know what? I didn't even see him coming. I didn't see him coming from a distance. I'm not saying that he disappeared out of the material air. He may have walked out of the woods and I don't know. But anyway, suddenly he's there and without anything, he just he immediately breaks his cigarette in half, makes this concoction with his spit and the tobacco and anoints my son's ear with tobacco juice. And it worked. It, Tim immediately stopped screaming. The, his ear stopped swelling up. And within a couple of minutes, he was running ahead of us, skipping with a great tobacco high. <laughs> and the guy strode off. And I don't even know if, I mean, I just kind of, he was gone. Maybe. I don't know. But I'll tell you this. All right. Back to scripture. Some of you are like, good. I may get an email or so for that one. But every time in the Bible... When humans encounter angels who actually reveal their glory, okay, who, who show their stuff, like what they're made of, every time, the human beings who encounter angels are like overwhelmed, even like traumatized, okay, traumatized. Like Isaiah in chapter six, he's like, woe is me. He, he was traumatized. So, Often we see angels, like they know what to say. It's like they've almost practiced it. Like what is the first thing angels usually say when they encounter people, when they show their stuff? 
Fear not, right? Don't be afraid. I mean, it's almost like they're like, hey, I got this assignment, talking to each other. You know, uh, I'm going to try to tone it down. What, you know, I don't know if they have like a communicate with humans one-on-one course or not, but like, here's how you try to keep humans from like totally having heart attacks and freaking out, you know? Um, what in their britches when you come and visit? How do you stop them from that? You know, so it might be things like, fear not, uh, you know, all is well with you. Mary, fear not, you found favor with God. You know, they've got to get it out right away because people tremble. Here's a case in point, Matthew 28, two through four, the count of the resurrection. Sometimes we miss this, but we read, and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. That's the effect. Sometimes even human beings are tempted to worship angels. We see that in, in the book of Revelation, a story of that. Where we read in Revelation 22, John has been given a, a tour of, of like the apocalypse by an angel. And, and we read in verse 8, John says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your, brother, your brothers and the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Worship God. Now, now angels have names. We, we actually read several. There's not many of them given to us in the Bible, but there are several. Like Gabriel and Michael and Lucifer before he fell. Angels have personalities. Now angels' primary function is to worship God and, and to serve him. Job 38, seven tells us that at the very creation of the world, the angels sang and they shouted for joy. Revelation 5.11 mentions myriads upon myriads and it says thousands upon thousands. So we're talking at least millions, all right? Uh, if not a whole lot more than that, angelic creatures that God has created that we read are around the throne of God in heaven worshiping the lamb. And we see throughout the Bible that they are sent to humans to communicate God's message. The, the actual word for, for angel in Hebrew, malak, and in Greek, angelos, both of those words actually literally mean messenger. So angels are messengers, but they also have superhuman power. They're strong and they can do things that are superhuman, that they, they employ those powers at times to actually help Christians. And that's what the very last verse of our text this morning says. In Hebrews chapter one, verse 14, mystery man asks the question, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now, one way that they serve Christians, us, is, is protection that they provide, both physically and spiritually. There's several texts that point to spiritual cosmic battles between angels and demons. But we read in Psalm 91, 11 through 12 about the physical protection that angels actually provide for the Lord's people. 
we, we, we read, for he, that is the Lord, will command his angels concerning you to guard you, to protect you in all your ways. On, on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. We read one story, actually there's two stories in Acts of angels delivering Christians from prison. One of those stories is Acts chapter 12 where we read about an angel of the Lord that delivered Peter from prison. And I, I, I can't quite imagine, but somehow Peter managed to fall asleep right before he was scheduled to be beheaded. I don't know how you do that, but he did. A lot of confidence in the Lord. So he's, he's chained between two guards and he's sleeping and the angel shows up and actually like kicks him in the side to get him up. And, and then has to give Peter very specific instructions. It's like, get up, you know, put on your sandals, put on your clothes, put on your, your garment, follow me quickly. And now Peter's just kind of in this fog, thinking he's dreaming, doing what the angel says. And, you know, and the angel actually was able to, we would say magically, uh, use powers beyond that of physics as we understand them to, to drop his, his it, we read the shackles just fell off of their own accord and the gate just opened of its own accord. Angel had power. Delivering Peter from jail. Now the good news is that the angels, and when I use the term angels, I'm talking about the good guys. Demons are also angels. They're fallen angels. So when I use the word angels, I'm talking about the Lord's angels. They're rooting for us. Okay, they're on our team. Jesus said in Luke 15, 10, just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Did you get that? They, they're like waiting and they are rejoicing when sinners repent and put their faith in Christ. It's like, that's what gets them fired up and excited. Now, several New Testament texts, including 1 Timothy 5, 21, indicate that angels are actually watching our Christian lives with interest. Kind of like, I don't know, I'm not a fan of it, but like reality TV or something, okay? They are watching you and me and, and watching how we walk by faith. See, they don't have to walk by faith. They see it all. They see God in his glory. So they're very interested in how we walk by faith. Do we walk by faith? They're watching our lives with interest and they, they're actually rooting for us to fight the good fight of faith. And I, I wonder how many times I disappoint an angel. You know, I mean, maybe you've kind of looked both ways. No one's watching. Oh, I know God's watching, but he'll forgive me. And there's an angel going, oh, man. Now, let me stop because we're going to get to the main point of our text in a minute. But let me just say this. Um, we should fear God much more than an angel and be much more concerned about disappointing our Lord than an angel. However, I wonder uh, if I may meet some angelic beings and if there may be a flash of embarrassment because uh, they saw it all or they saw some of it. Well, we read in Hebrews 1.14 that they serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. We read that again. They serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So implicit here is that angels actually help protect, part of their mission set is to help protect the elect 
to ensure that they reach that point of time that God has appointed for their salvation. Does that make sense? In other words, to make sure they don't get themselves killed before they get saved. I think of my daughter when she was one and a half years old in Afghanistan, falling 15 feet, landing on the back of her head, and no concussion, not a, not a scratch. Now, the Lord could have just done that by his own miraculous power without an angel, but he very well may have used an angel who bore her up with their hands. I don't know. Now, salvation here, inheriting salvation, may refer not just to conversion, that, that moment of first faith when God regenerates a heart and justifies an individual and brings them into their kingdom. It's possible that, that, that the mystery man who wrote Hebrews might be referring to glorification, which is that point that God has appointed for each of us to finish the, the, cross the finish line and die. All right? I can't tell you dogmatically whether he's talking about salvation as in regeneration or glorification, but if it's glorification here, we're talking about car wrecks that we never knew we almost had, right? Or car wrecks that we had that we shouldn't have survived. Now, now some have concluded from this text that every Christian has a guardian angel. And I've thought about this and looked into this a bit, and I have to say, I think that might be a bit of a stretch, okay? Uh, the Bible doesn't make it clear. This is a text that some have used to come up with the idea that every Christian has assigned to them one angelic personality who kind of sticks with them through life as a guardian angel, okay? Can't say that's the case. I can't say it's not. Wayne Grudem, a, a great systematic theologian, I kind of looked into what he had to say about this. He, he also said, you know, we really don't know. We don't know whether angels are uh, playing man-to-man -man coverage or zone defense, if that makes sense. We don't know. But clearly the Lord uses angels to protect his people. And I can tell you, there's a number of recorded stories from the mission field. A number of them from different continents where similar things have happened. Where tribal warriors at times in the past, usually this was stories from like a long time ago, 100 years ago. Where there were actual cannibals. Other times they're just, sometimes they've even been. Uh, radical Muslims, where they have surrounded missionaries' homes to kill them, but actually saw tall, shining men with swords surrounding them and were dissuaded and ran away afraid. And oftentimes the missionary had no idea why, like usually the missionary didn't see these angels, had no idea why. And sometimes it was like literally 10 years later, after a tribe is converted, when they, when they, they get the full story. That they, they saw this. And oftentimes God uses this to, to open their hearts up to salvation. I could, if you're interested, I could dig up some of these. I have read a number of these stories. Haven't experienced it myself. I tell you this, my, my wife's family had a story where they had a group of radical Muslims surround their house and actually enter their house. And they felt the wind of machetes swinging over their heads and not a hair of their head was hurt. Don't know why. Don't know the mechanism God used to protect them may have been angels. Here's the bottom line. Angels are awesome. And they're powerful. And they're really cool. But, and this is our second point, but. Jesus is greater 
than the angels. And this is the point of this whole text. Jesus is greater than the angels. So let's not be so impressed with angels that we fail to look to Jesus who's a billion times greater than the angels. Or kids, we could say a zillion times greater. Or maybe one of you, you engineers here who are good with math can give me the highest possible number you could come up with because it's not enough because Jesus is infinitely times, because he's eternal, greater than the angels. And so to, to, to make this clear, our, in, in our text, Mystery Man here creates a, a whole like tapestry of Old Testament texts. He actually quotes seven different texts from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? Five of these are from the Psalms, and, and there's also a, a quote from 2 Samuel and from Deuteronomy. Now, you know, I love doing sermon prep in community, and so I enjoy my time each week. Uh, usually Morgan and I spend a couple hours together just kind of walking through the text. So I, I send him some, some interpretive questions. He does a little research, and it creates great conversation. And he, he brought up a point that I hadn't thought about before. I hadn't noticed this. Um, but, you know, when Paul refers in his writings, in his epistles to the Old Testament, he says, it is written. All right? It is written. That's what he always says. Um, mystery man here in Hebrews says, God says. I just love that. So notice that as we go through these texts. He always says, God says. In other words, when the Old Testament speaks, God speaks. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. We, we, we should never cut our Bibles in half or, you know, it's actually more like three quarters, a quarter and ignore the Old Testament. You're going to find in Hebrews, we're going to go back a lot to the Old Testament because the writer does constantly seven times in this, in this one, one section. But God says here. And so I'm going to do my best here. And, and actually, you know, as I looked at this whole kind of mosaic of, of texts, I, I was trying to kind of figure out how, to, how does this all exactly fit and, and work together? And the best help I got was from this guy right here. You've heard me quote him before. But Pastor Kent Hughes, uh, I really felt like he nailed it well in his commentary. So I'm just, I'm just ripping off and using his five, the five subpoints here in point two. Okay, the way that we should look at... Um, the, way I, the most helpful way that I found, at least, to understand these Old Testament texts that he quotes, demonstrating the vast superior of superiority of Christ to the angels. So the first is a superior name. Look at verse 4 and 5. And of course, um, what we saw last week as we started Hebrews is that we just see the, the, the beauty and the superiority of Jesus in verses 1 through 3. And I'm just going to read it again for you. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he appointed, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's divine. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's Jesus holding the atomic structure of the universe together. I mean, that'll blow your mind when you think about the incarnation, right? The, 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 the Christ baby growing and learning and yet holding the atomic structure of the universe together. After making purification for sins, that is 
dying on the cross, raising from the dead, ascending into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So already we see his vast superiority over any angel. Verse four, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, now the Jews considered a name to have the power to demonstrate position and authority. And so none of the angels were ever called the son of God. We actually do see times in the Old Testament where angels are are referenced as the sons of God, but never is an angel called the son of God. Now it's important for us to remember that Jesus, that is God the son, was eternal. So Jesus has always been God the son, as far back as you can imagine in eternity past, dwelling with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in perfect unity. And and this is important to remember as we look at this text because we do see here God saying to Christ, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So the, the church fathers put a lot of thought into this when they formulated the Nicene Creed and its statement on the nature of Christ, which says, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Contrast that with the cult called Jehovah's Witnesses, who believe that God the Son, that would be Jesus, is less in nature than God the Father. Jehovah's Witness theology actually teaches that Jesus, that is God the Son, was created by God the Father and actually existed before his incarnation as Michael the Archangel. So they believe that he had a beginning. They would interpret this text here begotten to mean that at one point he didn't exist and God the Father created him. Therefore, he is lesser. And actually, the greatest of angels, but not equal with God himself. We need to remember that Jesus Christ, God the Son, was, he lived eternally. Goes back to eternity past. Now that being said, you might wonder, as I did, Why verse four says, having become as much superior to the angels? Because wasn't Jesus always superior to the angels? Well, I think the answer to that is there is a sense in which Jesus voluntarily became lower than the angels with the humility of his incarnation when he became a man. Lest that sound uh, heretical to you, I invite you to look down your page or turn the page over to Hebrews chapter two, verse nine, which says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And so Jesus voluntarily 
at what theologians call the kenosis, when he put on flesh and became truly human, he volunteered to become dependent on his own creation, to need air, to need water, to need food, and to therefore, in a physical sense, for a temporary period of time, became lower, in a sense, than angelic beings. But upon his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ was exalted by God the Father. So he was always the son, but there's a sense that we see in scripture, and there's a number of passages that seem to point to this. When Jesus rose from the dead and and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, there's a sense in which the father triumphantly pronounced, that's my son. And he was given the name that is above every name. Philippians 2 Verse 9 through 10 talks about this. It says, therefore, because of Christ's humiliation and his willingness to go to the cross and make atonement for our sins and and, um, his resurrection from the dead, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So Jesus has a superior name to the angels. He also has a superior honor. Verse 6 of Hebrews 1, our text says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Now the point here is, is simple. That is, the inferior creature worships the superior. The angels worshiped Jesus at his birth, and they're worshiping him right now. And they will be doing so for eternity. We read in Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, right? I mentioned this at the beginning of the message, numbering myriads of of myriads and, and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." So so the angels love to worship Christ because he has a superior honor. He also has a superior status. That's what we see in verse 7 through 9. And and Pastor Kent Hughes puts it this way. He writes, the writer demonstrates the superiority of Christ to angels by contrasting their statuses. The angels are servants. We see that in verse 7 here. Of the angels, God says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And that's pretty impressive if you ask me, but they're servants. But the son is sovereign. Angels can do some cool stuff as they do God's bidding, but they serve him. We see in verse 8 and 9, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, if you ever have these Jehovah's Witnesses or, or these young men on bicycles, uh, the Mormons knock on your door. And maybe you, maybe you bring them to like John 1, which is what we often think to do, right? You know, because it's so clear. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And of course, that's talking about Jesus, the, the Logos, the Word, right? And you think you got him, 
And then they say, oh, yeah, uh, you know, your translation's a little off. You know, these 19-year-olds pretend to understand Greek, right? And they're like, actually, our translation says, and the, and, and the word was a God. And you can try to get into the definite versus indefinite article thing. And let me just say they're wrong in their translation, okay? But you know what? If, if, if you're not getting anywhere there, take him to Hebrews chapter 1 and, and read verse 8 to them. Because here's what God has to say to Jesus. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The, the Father calls the Son God here. And he refers to him as a king, the, the sovereign one. That he has the scepter of righteousness that he rules the universe with. So Christ has a superior status than the angels. We'll also see in verse 10 through 12 that he has a superior existence. And this is God speaking again. And you, Lord, that, that is Christ, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We'll see later in, in Hebrews. So, so God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit created all things. And they created angels. So angels do not have an eternal past. Like us, they have a time in which they began living because God made them. But Jesus Christ here, who is referred to as Lord, he created all things and he existed in eternity past. He had no beginning and he will exist forever. So Jesus has a superior existence than the angels. And finally, we see in verse 13, Jesus has a superior vocation than the angels. The angels serves, but Jesus rules the universe from the very throne of God. Hebrews 1.13 says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? I'm reminded of this great promise in Philippians 2.11, that one day every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and by tongue, it's not only talking about human tongues, but even angelic tongues, even demonic tongues will be forced to confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In his commentary on this text, Al Mohler wrote, angels are spirits that minister to the body of Christ and are thus sent out by Christ himself. Angels indeed are remarkable, but they pale in comparison to the glory of the Redeemer the Son of God, Jesus Christ, he is superior to every angel, indeed to the entire angelic host. Okay, um, I think you got that. I don't think this has been a hard sell even to try to convince you that Jesus is superior to the angels. So here's my question. What in the world is the deal here with all this stuff about angels? Okay, like why does the Mystery man, the writer of Hebrews, spent most of chapter one trying to convince us that Jesus is greater than the angels. Not a hard sell, right? Why? Why is this all there? Why all this? What's up with angels? Well, there's a couple ideas here. Um, scholars tell us that during the intertestamental time, between the writing of the Old Testament and the New Testament, many Jews became very obsessed with angels. So angel, angelology became a much bigger thing 
than it is today. Maybe some of you at the beginning were like, huh, I'm not quite so sure as you heard me talking about angels because we're a bunch of naturalists, right? We're hardwired by our culture not to really believe in spirits and the reality of the spiritual, right? Well, these weren't naturalists. These were folks between a rock and a hard place waiting for deliverance who got really taken up with angels, thinking a lot about them. Now, here's something more, something maybe a little deeper. I think that it's likely that as persecution against Christianity intensified in the Roman Empire, Jewish Christians would have been tempted to say that Jesus was simply the greatest angel. Okay, remember, they were between a rock and a hard place. Okay, if you were a Jew, which the, we think the, the primary recipients of this book were, were Jews living in the Greek diaspora, okay, uh, and part of the reason, in, in the very last chapter, we see the writer of Hebrews mentioning Italy. Um, we see that he's quoting from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So these Jews would have been protected. Judaism was a legal religion. Christianity was not. That was considered a cult, and it was subject to Roman persecution. Moreover, these, these Jewish Christians, these Messianic Jews, were persecuted by the synagogue and, and oftentimes disowned from their families. Imagine what it's like today being a believer in Afghanistan. And, and persecution was starting to uh, rise in their life experience. And so it would have been tempting to move back into that protective category of, of, of Judaism and to say, you know, I've, I've encountered Jesus Christ, a powerful being, the, the greatest angel. They would have been accepted back into the synagogue and they could have even saved face. It wasn't a total denial of Christ, right? And they could say, I had a, I had a supreme experience with an exalted being, Jesus Christ, the highest angel. But the truth is, it would have been a total denial of Jesus Christ because he's the eternal son of God. So we're not tempted in this way, but are we not tempted in our own culture to make Jesus lesser than he claimed to be for the sake of cultural acceptance? For instance, to take Jesus as savior, but not Lord, not as coming conquering judge. I mean, it's, it's okay to say, um, um, I've, I found Jesus. People don't really mind so much in our postmodern society. Actually, they mind less than they did 30 years ago when we were a modern society, you know what I mean? Where, where belief in Christianity was, was like the opposite of science, right? And so any belief in the divine, you got scoffed at. Well, today, postmoderns are making fun of the modernists. And so everybody's allowed to be religious and spirit, or at least spiritual. So you can say, yeah, I, I found Jesus and people will pat you on the back. Yeah, he's a great sage. Good for you. You found your way. But if you say, nah, he is the way, the truth, and, and the life. If you make an exclusive truth claim, get ready to be picked on. Get ready to be persecuted. Is there not a temptation to reduce our faith to universalism? All paths lead to the sea for, for the sake of acceptance from others. So the Muslims want to say, yeah, Jesus is the greatest of prophets. Many Americans, yeah, he was, the, he was the wisest of philosophers. But anything less than the very son of God and the way, the truth, and the life, 
the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and we're making less of Christ than he truly is to be in our lives, for he is Lord. So let's join the angels now in worshiping Christ with our lives. We read in Revelation 5, verse 9, that they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look forward to that day when, like the angels, our faith will become sight. When we stand around your throne and worship you and receive our tasks to rule. Lord, when we do that without, without the curse of sin, Lord, without a broken world to live in, Lord, we look forward to that day. And we say, please come, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Until then, I pray that each of us in this room would, would follow Christ as our Lord and our Savior and our hero. And in his name I pray. Amen.